Let's uh, pray. Heavenly Father, as we've been singing these songs of praise to you, we thank you that Jesus did come to die for us and we can know him as Lord and Saviour. And we pray now that you would uh, help us to see what you are saying in this Psalm of David and help us to meet with you tonight, we pray. Amen. Well, as, uh, as you heard at the beginning, we are in this short series in the evening in uh, some of the early psalms that are found. And uh, we're in Psalm 14 tonight, and Psalm 14 is a bit unusual because it's repeated, uh, bar two words, identically in Psalm 53. So you've got a repeat of it. So there's two of them. And uh, I think that shows us uh, the importance of them. They're Davidic in origin, and they were given to the choir master to be sung. And uh, some of the commentators have said that Psalm 14 is a lament because it deals with the condition of the world. And some people have called it a wisdom psalm because it deals with the idea of what is wise and what is foolish. And as I was looking at this, I wondered, what is our reality like for us, for God's people, if we are God's people? How do we see the world? Some of us, of course, are optimistic. We tend to see all the good things around us. Others are more pessimistic. We see many of the problems. So what's your sense of reality tonight? Well, can I suggest that uh, the reality for all of us is that we live in a relatively small area of land uh, that is stuck out on the, uh, on the edge of this continental landmass that we call Europe. This map is a bit deceptive, actually, because the projection is wrong. It makes it look though uh, Britain is bigger, in fact, than France and Spain, and that's wrong, okay? But uh, that's another geographical issue, uh, and I'm, uh, I'm a geography, geography teacher. But I don't think any of us could argue that for us, the reality is that's where we live. We all have the same reality. But, of course, we know that we have different senses of reality. We see conditions that we live in differently. And our sense of reality may well change through time. We see the world differently when we're young. The reality of life, though, catches up with us, and it changes the way we think and feel. And we see or a classic example of how uh, reality is different for different people. Uh, three years ago when uh, we were given the glorious opportunity to vote as to whether we should remain in the European Union. Now, for some people, the reality was that the best thing could happen would be for us to stay put in the European Union. For others, they took the diametrically opposite viewpoint and they thought the best thing would be for us to leave. So we had differences of reality, different versions. And this, of course, led to incredible divisions and hostilities, 
both within families. I've heard of families who were at odds with each other about it. We had hostility within communities, within the political community, as well as geographical areas. Well, what's it got to do with Psalm 14? You might be thinking he's just gone nuts. Well, here in this psalm, we're given the reality as seen by the psalmist and as seen by God. The psalmist points a reality of a godless world in which the righteous must live and the threats of this world to those who are God's people. So we may well ask ourselves, well, come on, Nigel, we're living in 2019. Does this have anything to say to us in our generation? Well, the Apostle Paul thinks it does because he uses it in his writing to the church at Rome. And as a good teacher, I always like to give out homework. So I'd like to suggest that uh, sometime in the near future, if you'd like to read chapters 1, chapters 3, and chapters 11 of Romans, because that expands upon the themes found within this psalm. So what have we got in this psalm then? Well, we've got three voices present in these short psalm. We've got the voice of the fool in verse 1, We've got the voice of God in verses 2 to 6. And we've got the voice of a man uh, on behalf of Israel in, voice, in verse 7. So three voices, conveniently three points. So the first point then is this. Are we foolish or wise? Because the psalmist says in verse 1 that people are foolish. He writes, doesn't he? It's up there on the screen, verse 1 for us. The fool says in his heart. Well, straight away, we bristle at this, don't we, in our, in our PC world. Who are we to say that anybody is a fool? And what does the psalmist actually mean by using this word fool? Well, there are three Hebrew words used in the Bible for fool, but all of them speak of a moral orientation rather than an intellectual ability. So the word fool here is not being used in the sense that someone is stupid and can't cope with intellectual things or is less able. No, it's being used in the sense that it's a person who stubbornly rejects wisdom. And this wisdom is biblical wisdom. So who then is this fool? Well, in verse 1 it says, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Now, some people would call this person then an atheist. Now, there are two basic types of atheist. One who intellectually rejects the whole concept of a God, and we might think of someone like Richard Dawkins, for instance. But the other is the person who rejects God by their actions, giving no place for him in their lives. And the commentator says that here, the atheism in question is more practical than theoretical. It's not so much denying God's existence as his relevance to their lives. 
And so in this context, the fool is the person who decides that God shall have no place in their lives. In biblical terms, the fool is opposite to the wise. So we read in Psalm 111, verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All who follow his precepts have good understanding. To him belongs eternal praise. So in other words, the wise, according to the Bible, are those who acknowledge God, they follow his commands, and they worship him. The foolish are those who don't do this. Now, we know, of course, within our own characters, that uh, our characters are shaped and influenced by our wills. Our wills help to determine what we're like as people. So what the psalmist is saying here is that when we don't want to acknowledge God and his ways within our lives, our act, our wills, will lead to wrong actions. So in verse 1, the fool is either ignorant or an atheist. They are aggressively and intentionally independent from God and his commandments. God is not important in their lives. They shut off the affairs of this world from divine intervention and they deny any personal accountability to God for their action. Now, if you think, well, this is just the psalmist saying this, Paul writes the same thing to the Christians in Rome concerning God's anger towards sinful nature. We read of this in Romans 1, verses uh, 28, and in Psalm again 10, verse 4. Now, I'm not going to read all that out for you, but you're perfectly able to see that. Look at what Paul says about those that disobey God. So the fool then is not just the person who denies the very existence of God, but also includes the person who by their actions or non-actions deny God's role in their lives. So they give no importance to God's instructions on how to live. They don't seek after God. They don't acknowledge that God has any claims upon their lives. In fact, they could actually acknowledge that there might be a God, but they live their lives without any reference to him. And this is often seen in the way that they act towards other people. It's often self-determination, isn't it? And isn't this the reality of humanity? We see it right from the early days of childhood, where self dominates. If we think about why we do things, what motivates us to act and think, it's self that comes to the fore. And we see this in this first verse, how the psalmist goes from the individual, he says the fool, to they are corrupt, the plural, indicating that there are many of them. They don't acknowledge God. Now again, if you think this is just Old Testament understanding on the nature of mankind, see what Paul writes in his letter to the Christians in the Roman church. He states that humanity has no excuses for not knowing God. Romans 1, verses 18 to 23. He says, 
mankind has no excuse for not knowing God. So then, to summarize verse 1 and the first point, what David is saying here in verse 1 is that there are many people who act in foolish ways, whether they actively deny the very existence of God or whether they do so by their practical actions. In fact, they actively do what is evil. And it's got to be a warning, isn't it, to each one of us who live within our culture. If we claim to be followers of Jesus and we worship the one true God, does the way we think, the priorities of our lives, our money, our relationships, the practical way we live our lives reflect God's instructions to us, given in his law and the teachings of Jesus, to love God first and to give up all for Jesus? It's a challenge, isn't it? And something that applies to me and to us individually and corporately as a body of Christians together. So there's a challenge for each one of us in verse 1. But secondly, what's our reality according about God? What's our understanding of God? Well, we see this in verses 2 through to 6. Have a look at verses 2 to start with. Look what he says. He says that God looks down on all people. In other words, God sees all people. Do we believe this? Let me say it again. God sees. Now if we take this literally, this will affect how we live. If we don't believe it, that God sees our lives, our actions, our thoughts, that will also affect how we live. Because it brings God right down into the messy, difficult thing that we call life. If God sees how I live with my wife, how I work, how I spend my leisure time, what I watch, read, do, well, surely this is a revolutionary thing. Returning to the passage... What's the first thing that God is looking for as he looks at mankind? In other words, what's most important to God, according to David? Well, we read in verse 2 that he looks to see if mankind understands their situation with regard to God and their moral standing. And he looks to see and he sees that none does any good. Secondly, he looks to see if any of them are seeking after God. Now that seems to me to be the most important point to God. Note it doesn't say that he's looking for those who have already found God, who are walking with him and worshipping him. No, he's looking for those who knows what the reality of their situation is. And as a result of this, are seeking after him. Now, as a congregation here at Trinity, we've been asked by Richard to pray for five people on a daily basis. To pray to the end that they might become followers of Jesus. And I think that's a great thing to do. It's a positive thing for us to do. But I also believe that we need to pray that God's Holy Spirit will show us those that are seeking after God, those that he's working in, those that his Holy Spirit are acting upon. 
those that are open to Jesus. Because it's when the Spirit is preparing the heart that will lead them to become disciples of Jesus. That's, I think, an important point for us. But we also see in this section, verse 3. Look through verse 3. The reality that God sees, though, is different. He sees that they have all turned away from God. Their heart, feelings turn to action, and that those actions are totally depraved. There is none that does good, we read in verse 3. There's an absence of godliness. Now, we may think again that this is a one-off in the Psalms, but in fact, it isn't a new situation at all, is it, when we think about our Old Testament? Because we read of other times when God looks down on mankind and sees their evil actions. For instance, we look in Genesis 6, verse 5, where the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil. That, of course, was a part of the account of Noah when God judged the people of Noah's time and only Noah and his family were saved. But secondly, we've also got the account in Genesis 13 when God looked down on Sodom and Gomorrah and he saw their evil actions and he destroyed them because of their evil lives. So won't God judge again? And of course, this isn't just confined to the Old Testament. Again, we see Paul using this psalm in his writing to the church in Rome, in Romans 3, verses 9 to 10. What shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Not at all. For we have already made the charge that the Jews and the Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. As it's written, there is no one righteous, not even one. So these foolish people are not like the wise because the wise understand and they seek God's righteousness and they seek to follow him and obey his laws. And we see an example of this here with David. Those who want to live in God's standards of holiness and justice. But we also see in these verses uh, 3 to 6 that not only are there some holy people, we see that they will be objects of persecution. But we also see that God looks down and delivers them. So we read in verses 4 to 6 that God is speaking to the people. He says to them, The Lord is the refuge for the wise, who are called my people, the company of the righteous, and the poor. God will deliver them. Not the fools, because they don't know the Lord at all, nor that he cares for them. They pursue self-interest, and they devour God's people. They persecute God's people. Now again, don't we see this today in places around the world where persecution is happening? We see the persecutors have appetites of godless insatiability. They devour the possessions of others. And we saw the same again in the Old Testament in Isaiah's day, likewise, 
where the people in Isaiah's day had no knowledge of God's judgment. They ate and satisfied their appetites, but they didn't return to the Lord. They expressed no remote and no recognition of his judgment. And we, of course, are reminded of this again in the New Testament with the promise of Jesus to return a second time. When, when people will be involved in their normal lives, they'll be getting married, they'll be working, they'll be eating, they'll be drinking, and then suddenly Jesus will return a second time. There will be no warnings and there will be judgment and a new kingdom established. And so we read of this in Matthew chapter 24, verses 37 to 39. And Matthew refers us back again to the time of Noah and uh, the judgment that happens. And he gives the account there of Noah's judgment or the judgment of the people at Noah's time. And then he says, right at the end of that statement, that is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. So verse 5, the Lord's judgment will come suddenly and will intervene on the behalf of his people. The Lord is with his people even when he seems far away. The wicked may well heap abuse on the poor, but even in their persecution, God is their refuge of his children. God will provide refuge for his people even when they're under pressure. And so here is the hope for God's people. Because it is a dark picture, isn't it? This psalm is a dark psalm. We've had the persecution of God's people. We've had the state of mankind. The reality of mankind is desperate. Well, can I suggest to you, isn't this what we see today? Isn't this what we see on the news each night, whether that be in our country or in other parts of the world? We have seen how the fool turns away from God. We've seen how the earth appears to be full of people who don't follow God and obey his ways. And now we turn to the third point, verse 7. Have a look at verse 7. It's a very short verse, but it's there for us to give us hope and encouragement. Now, verse 7, a lot of the commentators say they think it was actually added on to the psalm at a later stage. Whether that be so or not, I don't know. But here we've got a man, a single man, who speaks on behalf of Israel. He speaks on the behalf of Israel. And it gives us a positive note here, because it looks forward to when Israel will be going to be saved by the action of the Lord. But note again, it isn't going to happen by the actions of mankind. There is nothing that man can do to earn this salvation for Israel. No, the saving of Israel is going to come from the Lord. He will restore the fortunes of Israel. He will restore the fortunes of Israel. Out of this dark picture that we've had, we read that Jacob and Israel will rejoice. And we read in, in Romans 8 the same thing. The day that we long for will come when the Lord restores the fortunes of his people. 
Now, this phraseology, restoring the fortunes of the, of the people, is characteristic of the prophets as they describe the era of restoration when Israel will be restored to the land. They will again enjoy the blessings of God. We read of this in, in Ezekiel and in Zephaniah. So just to give you one reference in Zephaniah chapter 2. Not many people read Zephaniah, but Zephaniah chapter 2 verse 7. The land will belong to the remnant of the people of Judah. They will find pasture. The Lord their God will care for them. He will restore their fortunes. And this was, of course, always after the exile. God demonstrates his faithfulness by his renewed blessings by restoring Israel to the land, by permitting his temple to be rebuilt. And so what the psalmist is doing here, he anticipates an era when God will vindicate his people and deliver them from the fools who oppress them. Now as we move through the biblical time, this promise of God to save his people is seen in the promise to send a Messiah to his people, a Messiah to save his people. This is what the Jewish people were looking for at the time of Jesus. The Gospels points us to this. The question is raised, is the birth of the baby Jesus the coming Messiah? And throughout Jesus' three years of preaching and healings, this is the question asked by the religious leaders. In Jesus' coming, Jews and Gentiles are further assured of God's concern, God's vindication, and the presence with his people. If you want to read more of this, then look at uh, Paul's teaching in Romans 11. Because the great hope is that God has provided a way for his people to be saved from the evils of this world and given the hope of spending eternity with Jesus. So then, a short psalm, but a difficult psalm. A psalm that points us to the question of what is our reality concerning life? As we look, that was the first question I asked this, this evening. What is our, our reality? Well, as we look at our, our reality, it may well contain difficult situations. We may be going through good or bad times. We may be experiencing the reality of living in a place where evil dominates, where power lives with the wicked. Well, this, this psalm promises us that we can rejoice that we have a God who sees the condition of the world. He sees our situation. He does provide us with hope if we're willing to worship and adore his son and believe that God provides a way for us to come and experience him through the death and resurrection of Jesus. I was thinking, how can I finish this difficult psalm? Well, I thought we'd go back to Paul again, and I would leave you with what is sometimes called a doxology of praise. Look what he writes. Oh, the depth of riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. Not being foolish, but being wise. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counsellor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? 
For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen.